That is the inimitable voice of the late, great Don Pardo, who passed away this week at age 96. What a voice. He was one of the few announcers who were household names. No doubt due, at least in part, to the fact that Bill Cullen used to give him a credit on the old Price is Right program half century ago. After which he managed to jump ship onto Jeopardy, where he again got a credit during the program. And when the original version of Jeopardy ran its course, he jumped ship onto Saturday Night Live. He was in the right place at the right time. Many of the illustrious cast that passed through the uh, the crew of Saturday Night Live said they felt they'd made it when they heard Don Pardo announce their name. But on last week's program, we said we would say a little bit more about Lauren Bacall and Robin Williams. Let's do that. The New Republic had an article by Clancy Siegel, I'll quote from briefly. Said Siegel, In the Lauren Bacall obits I've seen, there's only fleeting glance at her politics. She had the guts and stamina of a classic New York-born Jewish left liberal. So remember her not only as Humphrey Bogart's sultry siren into have and have not, but also as a kick-ass fighter, the only child of of a divorced, dirt-poor single immigrant mother. During Hollywood's 1950s blacklist purges, when studios denied work to alleged communist sympathizers and many in show business ran for cover, Betty Joan Persky, as Lauren was originally known, pushed her new husband, Bogart, into establishing the Committee for the First Amendment to denounce the blacklist and protect its victims who were more Jews and liberals than Reds. CFA was a cross-section of the plucky, upstanding Hollywood left. Danny Kaye, John Huston, Betty Davis, Frank Sinatra, Katherine Hepburn, etc. Bacall, a mere ingenue just starting out, risked her young career to stick her neck out, as did Bogart, who wanted to vote Republican until Bacall persuaded him otherwise. I was one of Bogie's agents during the worst of the Hollywood blacklist. In fact, I'd been blacklisted by Columbia Pictures myself. The pressure on him and Bacall to recant and retreat was overwhelming from the government, from Warner Brothers Studio, and from his agents. Hollywood was, was overrun with conformists. They would say, what's the point? It'll blow over. You never knew when your best friend might turn and rat on you or your union brother. Bogart and Bacall's Screen Actors Guild president Ronald Reagan was an FBI informant. The just-married Bogart, tied hand and foot to a studio by Jack Warner, wasn't a young man. He was nearly 50 but he took his brave stand in Washington by leading a delegation of A-list stars to denounce the House Un-American Activities Committee. His and Lauren Bacall's picture was all over the national press, which later was used in evidence against them. In the end, faced by waves of spy mania and a cowardly Truman White House, bent on out-witch-hunting the witch hunters, most of the CFA members resigned. The off-putting harangues by the unfriendly witnesses of the so-called Hollywood Ten communist and ex-communist screenwriters and directors subpoenaed by, the, by HUAC, gave the weaker spirits a perfect excuse. Except for a single article in a national magazine denying he was a communist, Humphrey Bogart never betrayed his blacklisted or tainted friends. In real life, aside from hard drinking, the tough guy Bogie was a rather gentle soul, and I suspect his wife had a lot to do with his political backbone. For the whole of her life, Lauren Bacall stayed a true blue New York left-of-center liberal Democrat, lobbying lobbying later for Adlai Stevenson and Bobby Kennedy, or as she proudly boasted in a late interview, I'm anti-Republican, a liberal, the L-word. All right, and I have to say something else about Robin Williams. Although I was definitely 
Not a fan. I should have been nicer last week. Said Peter Bart, a writer for Daily Variety. The suicide of a figure like Robin Williams always forces an editor to make a painful distinction. There's a difference between a celebrity and a mythic figure. A celebrity gets a respectful obit. A Robin Williams, who truly dug into the subconscious of our pulp culture, merits not only an obit, but a tribute. And that's a tough exercise. Contacting not just his co-stars, but his true friends. Publishing not just canned comments, but expressions of honest emotion. At any rate, I don't believe I've ever quoted Robin Williams on this program, but we shall do so now. And the one I'm going to choose is, you're only given one little spark of madness. You mustn't lose it. All right, let's do one other brief obituary here, that of Eroni Kumana. And no, I didn't really know his name either, but we have spoken to someone in this program that interacted with him directly because Mr. Kumana was one of the two Solomon Islanders who found the wrecked crew of PT-109 on a small island and took a coconut shell back to the U.S. Navy to get Commander John F. Kennedy rescued. We spoke with Ted Robinson on this program who was there receiving the coconut shell in question that led to the rescue. His obituaries noted that he never really knew how old he was, which is common in that part of the world, but as he was more or less a teenager, he started working as a scout for the Allies during World War II, tracking Japanese movements around the South Pacific archipelago. It was a dangerous job. Locals who collaborated with the Allies risked torture and death, and Japanese patrols often used the native canoes for target practice. John F. Kennedy never forgot the effort made by Aroni Kumana and his companion Byuku Gasa. He, in fact, kept that engraved coconut on his White House desk, and he even invited both men to his inauguration. Sadly, they were reportedly prevented from attending by colonial officials who were embarrassed by their homely appearance. All right, we've got about six minutes left, and I just want to talk about my kayak trip down to Southern California as I look at uh, this clipping I saved out of the bee showing these guys doing jetpacks down in Upper Newport Bay, where they apparently put the brake on the jetpacks, where we... We paddled right by those guys. That one's going to have to wait. And I do want to note that I did go check out the James Brown biopic, Get On Up, and enjoyed it. At times, actor Chadwick Boseman is channeling the ghost of James Brown, apparently. And while I note I am a huge James Brown fan, there's one aspect of the movie I I thought that it just didn't get right, which was James Brown's hilariousness. The shtick that he did was entertaining as hell. Those little dance moves, the numbers that he did, the way he performed. And I give him all the credit in the world for making it work. But on the other hand, (laughs) the falling on the floor, the grabbing the microphone, the capes. There's a humor quotient in that the movie elected not to touch. And I think that's that's too bad. Although I don't know how in God's name they, they could have gotten that part exactly right. I think the movie did inspire a piece in the San Francisco Chronicle a while back titled Long History of Pop Stars Acting Badly. They referred, of course, to James Brown's incident back in 1988 when he had his tires shot out, and which led to weapons and drug charges and him serving more time in the can. But uh, piece did note that judging by his mugshot, which, <laughs> which they included in the article, he must have felt really bad right about then. Oh, I feel good. I was more amused by some of the other entries in this article. For example, that of Chuck Berry, 
Back in 1959, I didn't know this, he served three years in an Indiana penitentiary for transporting a 14-year-old prostitute across state lines for immoral purposes. I imagine the press described her in the usual fashion as an innocent youngster at some point. Chuck Berry responded by saying, she was anything but innocent. And then there's Lady Gaga. <coughs> Mr. Miller, you're going to have to temporarily deactivate the Lady Gaga alarm. Under protest. I, I, no, I understand. The article notes that she was apparently banned from the New York Yankees clubhouse in 2010 after she attended a game dressed in her underwear. You mean she doesn't walk around in her underwear all the time? Uh, she, she showed up in her underwear and proceeded to drunkenly slur her words and repeatedly grab her breasts while meeting the team. As much as I'm not a fan of Lady Gaga, I had to admit seeing her on Letterman a week or two ago did prove to me that, well, she can sing. Well, uh, correction, she does have a strong voice. As for her antics and shtick, well, it just doesn't appeal much to this correspondent. And according to this article in the Chronicle, the week before the Yankees clubhouse incident, she'd gone to a Mets game dressed in a bra and flipped off photographers, which prompted security to move her to comedian Jerry Seinfeld's box, which prompted Seinfeld to say, this woman's a jerk. You give people the finger and you get upgraded? Is that the world we're living in now? At any rate, I think we're out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to the immortal Will Durst and to our good pal, Pamela Taylor. We're glad to have her back on the show. This program, like all of them, was produced by Edward McMillan. Oh, and by the way, any opinions you heard in this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. They do represent the opinions of your faithful host. That would be me, Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time. Get up off of that thing and shake the you feel better. Get up off of that thing and shake the say it now. Get up off of that thing and shake the you feel better. Get up off of that thing and try to release that pressure.